You guys are in for a treat next Sunday because he is dying to preach. <laughs> uh, bring your lunch next Sunday. It'll be a good one. Uh, it's so good to be home. And Eric, what a treasure it is to allow us to preach here in this uh, great facility with these wonderful people. Uh, our daughters were birthed to the kingdom here and nurtured by you, and I was raised by most of you, and so some of you know what that means, but boy, it's so good to be back. Uh, somebody asked about this pulpit. I know you don't see it every Sunday, but uh, when uh, this, this building wasn't configured quite like this when we came a few years ago, and the guy who built it somehow thought he was building King Solomon's temple. I don't get this, but... So everything's backwards, if you notice. Nobody would build a choir loft going that way. And this, the pulpit furniture was gold leaf. Looked like the Ark of the Covenant in somebody's imagination. So when Larry White came, he asked me, he said, Ken, does anybody like that pulpit furniture? And I said, I don't think so. And he said, well, it's going to disappear. And it did in one week. Some of you may, may still remember that. And we... we saved our lives, I think, by resurrecting this pulpit. It came from the downtown First Baptist Norfolk that burned to the ground. So that's the pulpit that you're seeing there and saved Larry and I from being fired really early in that, in that time. Uh, how many of you might have uh, spent a few minutes in front of the television watching the coronation of King Charles III? It told us it was the Commonwealth in England and 14 different Commonwealths. And I thought, that's pretty impressive. I, you know, I could kind of get used to his life. If you've seen his palaces, you've been over there, you know he's got several different places. And you think, royalty wouldn't, wouldn't be that bad. But you know, there's a problem to that, and that is you have to be born into it. You really can't just choose to run for being the king of England or whatever that is. Well, I've actually got some pretty good news for you today. Has it ever occurred to you that you were born to royalty? You were born to be a royal priest and to serve the one true king in this life and for all of eternity. Now, I'm kind of watching faces in here, and I know what some of you are thinking right now. Well, I've, I've heard this before, ho-hum, ho this is kind of Bible talk. I was teaching at Wingate College when I first returned from Cambridge Baptist School and near Charlotte. And a lot of our kids were Baptist kids from great Baptist churches, and many of them were Christians, some were not. I had a young man I was teaching, an Old Testament survey class. They give that to first semester professors in that way. And, and this kid was bored. He, he was sitting about three rows back, preacher's kid. I knew his dad. Dad was a godly man. This kid was. He was a good kid. But he'd sit there kind of every day like, I've heard this. Now nah, I've heard this. So one day I was lecturing, and I happened to mention a pagan king in the Old Testament. I forget which one it was. And I noticed a light just came on. You know, and if you're a teacher, you know what I mean. There are times that you notice somebody just got something. And it, it was so dramatic that I actually ended my lecture a little early. And I said uh, to him, I said, would you stop my desk a minute? So he stopped, and friends had left. And I said, what happened today? 
He, he said, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I didn't do anything wrong. And I said, no, no. I said, you got it. I said, what happened today? I said, you came awake towards the end of the lecture. I never forget what he said. And, and I'm going to try to quote it as accurately as I can because I want you to hear it. He said, well, you know, when you mentioned that pagan king, he said, I just studied about him last week in my real history class. <laughs> I knew what he meant. It was the world history down the hall. But it dawned on me that this young man who had grown up in our churches, that he would have, if I asked him that day, do you believe the Bible is true? Do you believe this book is the Word of God? I may have used the word inerrancy. I probably didn't. Do you believe this book? And he would have said yes. But I realized that for him, this book was something like Narnia. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, that is kind of a parallel history where people walk through wardrobes and they come out in another land where beavers can talk to you and lions would die for you. You see, we've kind of done this to ourselves because uh, we have camp songs and we have go for barky barky in our arky arky arky, right? And that sounds a lot like Mother Goose, doesn't it? I mean, we tell these narratives of the Old Testament and we kind of walk out saying, oh yeah, that's history, but it's kind of a parallel universe. So when I asked a probing question, I don't expect you to answer it, but before the sermon over, I hope you will. Do you believe this Bible is true? I mean, cover to cover that it tells the real story, not always the narrative you hear, but the real story that it tells us the story from the beginning to the end and beyond. Now, if you said, yeah, I do believe that the question is, do you live your life? every day based on that narrative of events. Because I promise you, you're not going to hear that history story in many secular universities. You're not going to hear that history story reflect in the reporting of the news every night because this meta-narrative is a little different story. So let me kind of summarize this meta-narrative, if I will, and then I'm going to introduce and take us into our text. It's in the Old Testament, so if you want to get a head start, we're going to be in starting in a verse in Exodus chapter 9, but the story goes something like this. In fact, it goes pretty much exactly like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but uniquely He created you. He created mankind in his image, that we from the very beginning of time were designed to relate to the sovereign creator of the universe and reign with him eternally. The adversary convinced mankind that they could be their own gods and establish their own rule. This led to the fall and the separation from a rightful king and to our ultimate death spiritually. It also led to two kingdoms in conflict. Now you're 
Some of you are already kind of tuning out a little bit, saying, well, that's kind of an Old Testament view. No, it's actually a Bible view. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 that we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's talking about salvation, which Eric's going to be preaching on these few weeks. There, there was a part of salvation that was not just our redemption, but it involved a transfer. And so we were transferred from a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of death and destruction, into a kingdom of light and a kingdom of life. It was the kingdom of his beloved son. If you read the New Testament in the parables, they have one common theme, and that is the kingdom of God. As soon as the temptation narrative is over that we'll be kind of looking at with our seniors and the rest of you who want to come, uh, you're going to find that Jesus began to preach what? The kingdom. So it is all about this kingdom narrative throughout. So now, as early as Genesis 3.15, the sovereign God who knew Everything from eternity past established a means by which sinful mankind could be reconciled to a holy God and once again join him in his kingdom activity. We find as early as Genesis 3.15 where he tells us the fact that one day the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed and the seed would in fact crush the head of the serpent, speaking already that early of a coming Messiah king. So his kingdom has been and will be forever. So he established a way that sinful man could come back into relationship. But the problem was mankind continued in sin, which led to the flood and the repopulation of the earth. This early period ends ingloriously as persons again build a ziggurat or a way to join their own way to heaven and make a name for themselves is what the text shows us. Nations with varying languages scattered throughout the world enter Abraham or Abram. God designed and called a man who would become a nation. He says, I'm going to bless you. And the progenitive from you, from you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The problem is the patriarchal period, which we find in the book of Genesis from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, ends again in captivity because, listen, Israel consumed God's blessing and refused to convey it. So God's design with Abram was that this nation of Israel would become a conduit of his blessing to all the nations of the earth to restore them to their rightful king. So now we enter into this narrative in Exodus with a man named Moses. God had designed him uniquely, redeemed him through a period of time when the Pharaoh was killing the male children designed him with uniqueness. The fact that he was trained in the Pharaoh's camp has all to do with his ability to lead Israel. You remember, of course, he encounters God in a unique way at the burning bush. Moses, I'm convinced, by the way, as Southern Baptist, you'll feel good about this because nobody has more excuses for why they can't join kingdom activity than Moses and Baptist. And God said, I designed you and called you 
so that you would lead my people out of bondage. And he said, I can't do that. I don't speak very well. In fact, he is very much like us because he volunteers his brother. You ever been to that committee meeting when the one guy that's elected chairman was the guy that wasn't there that night? Don't miss it. You miss the committee meeting, you're the chairman. And God answers him with his name. He said, tell them, I am that I am sent you. Now, it's actually a Hebrew word. It's in the hephil. It's a verb, not a noun. One of my professors at Southwestern said it may be better translated this way. I am who I have always been. And I will continue to be that. Now, that's a pretty stunning name because it talks about his eternality and his causality. In other words, I know what's going on here. I made a covenant with Abraham and his people. That covenant is faithful and sure. And I am who I am and I will be tomorrow because he says, Moses says, back to God. Well, the Pharaoh thinks he's a God. (laughs) He said, I am. You didn't get it, did you? His name is the answer to every objection Moses had and every objection that you have. You see, all Moses needed to know was that God said, I will be with you. Makes a promise. He's not going to bring you back to Mount Sinai. You'll be a chance to worship me here. When God calls you into kingdom activity, so that occurs the moment that you are born again. You're going to see that in a minute. He is calling you because he prepared you from your mother's womb for this kingdom of his. You see, I told you some of you will say, I believe the Bible. I believe this narrative. I want to tell you this narrative indicates that there has been a kingdom of God that extends from eternity past and will extend to eternity future future, and you were designed with that in mind. That's why God created you. That's why he wired you in your mother's womb. That's why everything in Moses' life had led to this moment in time, and God said, you don't need to worry about this because I got it. I'm with you. So now, God is a patient, long-suffering God, and he actually gives the Egyptians 10 chances to repent. You remember, there's 10 plagues. Every plague is named or aimed at one of the pagan deities worshiped in Egypt. But here's the real reason. Look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain. He's talking to the Pharaoh. He said, okay, I've, I've given you time. I've been patient with you to show you my power in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. The Great Commission didn't start in Matthew 28. The Great Commission started the moment God created the earth, knowing that mankind would fall into sin, sending Messiah Redeemer, a King Redeemer, so that we could join him in his kingdom activity to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation hears about their rightful king and has the opportunity to worship him for all eternity as Revelation teaches. That's beginning to end. So now let's turn to chapter 19. This is our text for today. By the way, this is kind of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to do with the senior adults and the rest of you who show up. Exodus 19. Now, you remember he said, I promise you I'm going to take you back here. I'm going to let you worship me. 
In the third month, chapter 19, verse 1, in the third month, the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that very day. <laughs> He's pretty excited about this because God said, I'm going to let you come up here and worship me on the mountain. That very day they came into the wilderness. They set out from Rephidim. They came to the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness. Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain. He says, thus you shall say to this house of Jacob, and tell this to the sons of Israel. Every word is loaded. Hang on. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagle's wings. And I brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So you speak these words to the sons of Israel. Now I want you to notice, first of all, that the prerequisite for all kingdom activity is redemption. What he tells Moses to tell the Israelites first is that I redeemed you on eagle's wings. The image of the eagle, the mighty eagle, is to emphasizing the sovereignty of God, that redemption is God's sovereign activity alone. There is nothing they could do in bondage. There is nothing you can do in your sin to save yourself. Amen. It is an activity of God's grace. It is solely of grace, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift to God, because if we could do it on our own, it was unnecessary for the Messiah to come to planet Earth. So he begins by saying, I brought you on eagle's wings. Now, it gets more intimate than that because he said, I brought you to myself. God's redemption is not merely an issue of getting you out of slavery to sin. It is also an issue of bringing you to himself. Folks, that is absolutely good news because it's intimate. God is not simply doing some generic redemption story. He sent his only begotten son to die in your place, in my place, so that I could know him personally and eternally. I brought you to myself. Yeah, you're getting it. Jesus, when he tells his disciples later that he's going to leave them, it's what we call the after the Passover. And they've been given the news, shocking news, that the Messiah is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And they're struggling in that. And he promises, he said, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you guys like orphans. He says, I will come again and I will receive you, 14-4, what? To myself. His high priestly prayer, one of my favorite New Testament texts. He talks about the fact that he's expressed God's glory through his life. He prays that God would manifest his glory on the cross. Then he starts praying for us. I'm serious because he says to the disciples, I'm praying for all those who will believe through you. So we're a part of that. And he prays for our unity. He prays for our joy. And then his last request, he said, Father, now, now, he's facing the crucifixion. He's facing the moment when he knows the Father's going to turn his face on him because of our sin. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? His last prayers, he said, Father, I pray that one day 
that they will be with me where I am so they can behold my glory from the beginning of time. You say, what is heaven like? I don't know. But I tell you what, I know one thing. It is the presence of Jesus eternally. He said, I'm going I'm to bring you to myself. You see, redemption is not about getting better. It's about being redeemed from and redeemed to. But the process is not simply from there to heaven. He redeemed us for this kingdom activity. He's given us this privilege on planet earth. Whether he gives you 10 years, 50 years, or 100 years, he designed you to join him in his kingdom activity. And that's why he redeemed you. If he redeemed you to take you to heaven, we ought to have a retractable roof. You get saved and raptured. Just one time. Why did he leave us here? He left us here for his kingdom activity. So Israel is now God's in a twofold sense. They were created by him and for him. And now they have been redeemed or bought back to become a royal priesthood. Write it down. We were created with kingdom purposes and now we have been redeemed, enabling us to fulfill those purposes. So redemption is the bedrock. Number two, what is the prerequisite then for kingdom activity on planet earth? It's in verse five. Now then, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be. Now the bestowal of the covenant is unconditional in the sense that all Israel needed to do to enter that covenant was to accept it by faith. He bore them on eagle's wings. They had to follow him. They had to walk through that Red Sea of redemption. So Israel is redeemed by the grace of God, and all they had to do was accept it by faith, as you do. But there is a conditional element, and it's represented by the if-then clause. It occurs throughout the Old Testament. This one is specific. He said, if then, if you will obey, and if you will keep my covenant. Now, this is not a contradiction. It's not an issue of work salvation. Salvation was by grace alone. The thought is introduced that obedience is needed as well as faith because it is related to God's blessing and God's status as our kingdom servants. Now, what is God's blessing? It's God's three things. It's his provision. It's his protection and its presence. Three P's if you needed to write it down. So God's promise to Abram was to bless him. There was an if-then part of that. There is an if-then there. So God is omnipresent. We all agree with that? But there is a different level of presence for those on mission with him. Matthew says that right after. He said, I'll be with you always, even at the end of the earth. So I call it, Eric, a missional presence. We may call it anointing. And that is that there can be Christians who spend all of this life and wasted opportunity for the kingdom and never experience this empowering of the Spirit of God by the presence of God and the power of God for the mission of God. And that's the wasted lifetime. You see, you were designed for his presence and his power, for his missional activity. And the requirement there is obedience to his word. 
The Bible then from there on, that's why Leviticus comes next. The Bible teaches us how kingdom people must live to reflect his character and complete his mission. Israel is called redeemed to be a kingdom people and the issue for them, if then is effective, redeemer king service. The same can be said of us. If you will obey, then you will be my possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm going to tell you something. God is seeking a people. I'll give you three things. Write them down. Who will embody his name. It's his character. He's wanting a people that will embody his name because he's making a name for himself. God is looking for a people who will embody his name, embrace his mission, and obey his word. That's God's purpose and his intention, and that's what he's seeking for. So what is this kingdom activity? What is our task? Look quickly with me. So you're saying, okay, what does that mean to be a royal priest? I'm, I'm, this is new to me. I haven't heard it. So let's, let's deal with it. Number one says we are a treasured possession. King James translates that peculiar possession. And knowing most of us, it's pretty good translation. But there are two aspects of this treasured possession. One is it has to do with God's love for us. In fact, the psalmist refers to him, God, as or himself as the apple of his eye. Now, you know that about grandkids, right? Now, Eric and I were discussing that. If you, if you knew how good grandkids are, you'd just skip the kids straight to the grandkids. I'm sorry. You got to have the kids to get the grandkids, I guess. You know, that's how it goes. But you got those pictures up there and hey, everything they do is just incredible, isn't it? I mean, your kids, you know, they, they walk. And your grandkids, they walk. Did you see him throw that ball? I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? Do you know that Paul used this same engine in Ephesians 1 and he prays for the church at Ephesus that you would know that you're God's unique possession? That God desires to possess us. But there is a more profound idea behind this. It is the word movable. We're a maneuverable possession. Now, the unique aspect about God as opposed to all the deities around them. And the Old Testament makes much of this, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The, the other deities were no gods at all. They were, in fact, idols. If an idol was going to move, guess what? You were going to carry it. That's not much of a god if you got to carry the guy around, right? Everywhere they went from one nation to the other, there were these regional deities. But the unique aspect of Israel was that their god went before them and with them. That's why Moses said, if you don't go, I'm not going. A good decision, by the way, on his part. Do you remember when Israel starts to, to go into the promised land the first time? They get the spies report, and they say, oh, damn, we're not going. Then they realize the next morning, we messed up. We're going today, Moses. He said, don't go, because God will not go with you. When God doesn't go with us, we're in trouble. But listen, God promises his missional presence to those who understand that they are his unique, movable possession. Now, what does that actually mean? It actually means 24-7, you are on kingdom duty. This is not about preachers and missionaries. It's about us. We are a kingdom of priests. God 
redeemed you for that very purpose. And he said, I brought you to myself for a reason. And that is that if you will do these things, you will be to me a movable, unique, special possession. Isn't that how Jesus functioned? Most of the miracles of Jesus occurred on the way somewhere else. You ever notice that? Eric will testify as I do as I travel around. I had the privilege of being at the seminary, et cetera, and I meet kids, students who were there. I don't remember their name anymore. And most of the events that they record to me that God used me in their life, I didn't remember nor did I plan. But I want you to understand something. I don't care whether you're retired and you spend your day at the golf course or the tennis courts or or wherever it is that you go, or shopping center, you are on mission there. You are God's movable possession in that moment, at that time, because God has a kingdom agenda that's going on 24-7, and every event, when seen through the lens of this kingdom, God is already at work before you get there. Now, uh, I want you to understand, I'm for kids going into science and technology, and I'm glad they're truck drivers, and I'm glad that there are ladies who work at home, and where is there a lake in the marketplace? Because when God scatters his church like this, he has kingdom agents everywhere. When I was in Galax, right before I came to be pastor here, we had a gal in church who was a nurse, and she was really struggling. She came to me for some counseling. <laughs> You'd have to struggle to come to me for counseling. Some of you know that. But the fact of the matter was she had been shifted to the third shift. So it was the middle of the night. She hated it. She couldn't get to sleep. She and her husband were at odds with each other. And so I, I said, well, why did you become a nurse? She said, well, I like to help people. And she says, a Christian, I thought that might give me a good way to minister to them. And I said, well, let me ask you another question. She said, what, what's different about third shift? She said, it's all night. I said, okay, I got that one. She said, uh, there's nobody else there. Ah. I said, well, that's kind of interesting. No doctors? No. Well, do you have a lot more time with your patients? Well, yeah. And I said, maybe God moved you to that shift because of your desire to be that kingdom agent. Have you thought about that? She came back in about two weeks ago. Later, and she was just a glow. And I said, Oh, did you get moved to the other shift? She said, I never go. She said, I got to think of what you said. And I go into a room, and the other night, guy was going into surgery and he didn't have any hope, couldn't go to sleep. And I got to lead him to Christ. You see, God can use kingdom agents at any place he chooses. I remember a visit I made when we were in EE here, and we'd kind of gotten to where we would. We were using a lot of spiritual gifts material and things of that nature and trying to get people to use their gifts in the right context in the, in the kingdom. And I was visiting this young couple. They were new to the area. And, and so after qualifying and finding out they were Christians, I, I asked the question and I said, if, if God were to place you in this church, I, I believe 1 Corinthians 12, 18, by the way, that God builds his body as he chooses. So you're not here by accident. You see, God's put you into this kingdom agenda. See, he works his kingdom activity through his church. And I said, if God were to add you to our fellowship, what, what is it he, he's geared you to do? What is he? And she did the typical Baptist answer. Well, what, what classes do you have open? Well, you know, what, what slots do you need to fill? I said, honey, I didn't ask you that question. I said, what, what would you do? I desire to do. Now, 
give you background. This was during a time that Jeremiah people, it was a kind of a drama group of Christian kids would travel, and a lot of churches were using drama vignettes as a part of the service. That was contemporary then. And we had a group that wanted to do that, but we didn't have anybody gifted to kind of lead it. And so she said, well, Dr. Emperor, she said, I was a drama major in college. And she said, I would love to use drama in the life of the church to help. And I started laughing. <laughs> and she said, I told you you would laugh at me. And I said, honey, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. I said, our church has been looking for that. And we were praying that God would bring you. I do believe God brought her for that reason. God's doing that right now in terms of this children and youth ministry he's talking about. God's doing something that's unique and special because of his kingdom agenda. And you're a part of that. He's, he's placed you here for that reason in his body. You are his kingdom people. He's designed you for this kingdom adventure placed you in his kingdom community, gifted and empowered you by his spirit to advance his kingdom until he returns. Hallelujah. Isn't that the truth? Secondly, you're a royal priesthood. You have royal blood in your veins. It speaks of our mediatorial role. The idea, by the way, was ignored pretty much as long as there was an Old Testament priestly family. But of course, we realize in the New Testament time, Jesus Christ became the great high priest, offering himself as a better sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, he empowers us to join him as a priestly people and represent him as ambassadors on earth. Now, turn quickly to 1 Peter, if you would. This is a very famous, important passage in Baptist lineage and life because it deals with the priesthood of believers, most neglected, misunderstood topic that we have. Listen to this, 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones. Now, Christ has been already declared to be the cornerstone, but now we are living stones and we're being built up to a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So our role, once we're saved through Jesus Christ, is to join in where his cornerstone is as a living stone to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Good news here. These have already been declared acceptable to God. Some of you are sitting there saying, I don't have that much to offer. I'm not that gifted. I don't sing like those guys. I can't teach like that. I don't care what it is God has wired you to do. He's already declared that it is acceptable to him. He approves it. He's already said that's good. Before Jesus' ministry, before any miracle was done, at the point even before his baptism, he speaks out of heaven and says what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because God had designed him and wired him for that moment and the son accepted what God had intended him to do. Now, quickly, what are these sacrifices? I want you to kind of write these down, if you will, because I think a lot of people say, oh, that's a neat kind of sounding thing, but what does it mean? Well, in verse nine, he says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Recognize those words a people for God's own possession, so that he may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into light. So the first sacrifice is that we proclaim the excellencies. Evangelism is not something for the 
elite forces of God's kingdom. It's the privilege of all of God's children. You see, we all have a witness. We all have a story. Once you've come to Christ, you have a story. That story plus his story is what evangelism is all about. <clears throat> Telling somebody what God has done in your life and how he can do it in their life. His excellencies. Turn over now to Hebrews, if you would. <coughs> Backwards to Hebrews there. <coughs> He's going to pick up some of these same themes <coughs> in Hebrews uh, chapter. Put my glasses on so I can see my Bible. 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips to give thanks to his name. So there is a sacrifice of praise. So you not only have to proclaim his excellencies, you have to continually praise him. Do you know that's why we worship together? That's why we praise here is to teach you how to praise at home. And throughout the day, you know, worship is, is not just Sunday morning for 45 minutes or an hour. But sometimes I see people sitting back there during the praise time. They got their arms crossed saying, I bet they can get through that so we get the sermon. Guys, you were designed to praise. You were designed for this. And if you think it's long here, got eternity. And you're going to get to do it for all eternity. Some of you need to practice a little more. To get ready for that. Amen? Amen? All right. Third one. I got to move quick here. The third one. I, well, that was the third, right? Present our body. I missed that one. Romans 12. Let me go back again. Proclaim excellencies. Number two, present your bodies as living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1. That's the sacrifice that Paul says we offer to God. He's already declared it acceptable. You know what your body is? Your body is the container for all the spiritual gifts. And it's where all the gifts operate out of. So people say, how do I discover my spiritual gifts? Give yourself to God. Just get on this altar and say, God, no conditions, no agenda on my part. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'm ready. I'm present. I'm here. Use me. God wants you to know your spiritual gifts more than you do. Because he designed them in you for his kingdom's sake, not for your own glory. So your body... Third was that sacrifice of praise. Number four was good works of service. Now, this is interesting. He goes on to say, and do not neglect doing good. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were actually redeemed for good works, which God purposed beforehand that we might walk in them. Did you know that before you were born and before you were saved, God designed a kingdom agenda just for you, to walk into it, to, to participate in it, to advance his kingdom. You are royalty and your task is huge that we would walk into that. Then he says, and sharing. Look at this. This one, don't neglect this. Doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I had a little trouble with that one because the Greek word there is an interesting word. It is the word koinonia. We hear it a lot in the New Testament community in common. They had everything in common. 
Did you know that you were also created for community? You're not a priest alone. We're a priestly people together. So this is why in Hebrews, he says, oh, let us draw near. I'm over in Hebrews 10 right now. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How? Not forsaking, assembling ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Do you know what the habit of some leads to? The shipwreck of their kingdom agenda. They don't lose their salvation, but they lose their effectiveness in the kingdom of God. People who tend to take church attendance as a nominal issue, they lose their effectiveness in the kingdom of God, and they lose their blessing. It's not that you can lose your salvation. You can't be born again and unborn. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what God designed you for, what God wired you to do. You can lose the potential and the privilege of serving the King of Kings for all of his eternity and glory. That's why our life together in stewardship with him. Last one, a holy nation. Why? <laughs> because we serve a holy God and only a holy people can represent a holy God. That doesn't mean perfection. The apostle Paul would say, I've not yet attained it yet, but he would say what? I forget what lies behind. I press on. You know, the problem is, the problem is all of us have not attained it. The problem is most of us quit trying. And we have a day when we better start preaching holiness again, because we're standing in a nation of perversion and sin like I never thought that I would ever have to address in the pulpit. But you know the good news? We can shine like lights in the midst of this perverse generation. Last part, what is the extent of this kingdom? It goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 9. When he brought them to himself, he said, I brought you to myself. I made you a royal priesthood, a special possession for the whole earth is mine. That statement is not simply one of fact. It is true, in fact, but he's not talking about mountains and trees and all that. He's talking about the nations of the earth. You see, Abraham was supposed to bless the nations. Israel was to bless the nations. And we are called to bless the nations. As early as the temple, he said that they would come and pray to that place so the foreigner would hear what God was doing for his namesake. And they would come to the temple. There's a passage in Zechariah I love. So when, the, when Israel, when the Jews would come back to the Messiah, that it would be so amazing that people would grab their garment. Ten men would grab their garment saying, let me go where you're going. Oh, to God that would happen in First Norfolk. And when we scatter this afternoon on that beach or going back to work, that they would see such of the glory of God in us as his own possession and a royal priesthood that they would grab hold and say, I don't know where you're going, but I'm there next Sunday. That's what God wants to do. You ask them the question, who you can invite? Bring them. Bring them. Don't invite them. It's to bring them to say, hey, here's where I found life. Here's where I find community. Here's where I found Jesus. The extent of it, <laughs> Revelation 7, 9 kind of tells us the end of the story. If you're wondering about this royal priesthood and how this story ends, verse 9 of chapter 7 says, After these things I'll look and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, 
and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They had branches in their hands, and they were singing, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. I know that you want to stand in that glorious presence. It doesn't happen until you've been redeemed from Egypt, bondage of slavery, and brought to himself because that's where he is. So if you're here today and you've never made that pivotal decision in your life, don't chance another moment. The story I told you is true. It's real history. From before the beginning to the other side of the end, his kingdom is forever. If you're a Christian and you've not plugged in to his kingdom activity through this church, if this is where God's led you, do it. He created you for community. He designed his body as he chose for his kingdom agenda. That's why he calls it his bride. He calls it his field. He calls it his building. He says it's his body. He's the head. Listen, if you love Jesus, you must love his bride. Because that's where his kingdom activity occurs. Let's bow together. Pastor and others will be down here at the altar. I know sometimes it's hard to respond with, have a guest preacher in that way. But you're not responding to me or to Eric. You've got to respond to the king and to his word. The Bible tells us this good seed and it won't ever return void. But it does warn us that the soil could actually reject the seed. If it's a hard heart, rip it open, Lord. If there are thorns and thistles, pull those out. If, if our soil is too thin today, deepen it. If you're here and you don't know Christ as Savior, find one of these pastors and say, what do I need to do? If you don't have a church home where you can plug in for the sake of the kingdom, stimulating one another to good deeds, do that today. If you don't know where your place in this church is, you're a member and you say, Eric, I, I need to get engaged. I need somebody to connect me. You come down. We, we can help you with that. Lord, today, do it for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.